So that just frustrated me. And I kind of had a moment where I was like, fuck it. If no one's going to help it, us, I'll help us. <laughs> hey, friend, it's David Nabinsky here in Brooklyn. Here at the Portfolio Career Podcast, we help you take ownership of your career and design a life that you want to live. Today's conversation is about how people got started, how they started something, a company, a project, a new career, and or something really personal. This is another Podcast Mixer episode where this episode is recorded in an apartment in Brooklyn with about 20 people live during the episode. People come up and they'll share a short story and then there's live Q&A at the end. I really love these episodes and I hope you do too. I'm curious about you. How did your project, business, or something really personal to you get started? Let me know. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. I'm really curious. As always, this episode is available with notes on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my Portfolio Career Substack, a newsletter that I send out every two weeks. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Olive. All right, Olive, uh, I would love to hear how you started writing books. Sure. So my name is Olive Persimmon. As you heard, some people call me a different name. We don't need to get into that. And when David said the prompt is... Um, how did you get started? I said, let me tell you. I'm an author. I've written three comedy books. Um, also a speaker, public speaking coach. But I started writing. Uh, it was December 2010. Let me paint the picture for you. I'm living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. And the dating scene there is pretty bleak. <laughs> if you've ever been to Cleveland, you don't need an explanation. Okay. <laughs> you can imagine. I'm probably 23, 24 at the time. I had no ambition to write a book. I was not a writer in my heart. It wasn't my big dream when I was growing up. I actually wanted to be a hairdresser when I was a kid. So writing sort of blindsided me. But you know who didn't blindside me? Luke, the cool boy in the leather jacket who used to say, I want to get sweet on you. I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded really nice. I was into it, right? So Luke and I meet up at this restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio that only sells hot dogs. That's a thing that happens in Cleveland. It's called the happy dog. Now you can go and you can order gourmet hot dogs and these hot dogs have mustard and mashed potatoes and raspberry jam and blackberries. You see the vibe, right? Upscale hot dog stand in Cleveland, Ohio. So I meet Luke there. The time I'm working at a nonprofit, again, no ambition to become a writer. I meet Luke there and I look okay. It wasn't my best night. And Luke is sitting next to me at the bar and I order my hot dog, extra mashed potatoes, crunchy onions, and raspberry jam. I'm getting crazy. The hot dog comes out. This is where the story really happens. At this exact moment, I reach for my hot dog when Luke's friend walks in through the door of the bar across the other side. I take a bite of my hot dog and I'm thinking about what you would think I was thinking about at that moment I'm on a date and I feel the hot dog become lodged in my throat. Now Luke looks at his friend, he gets up, he goes say, says hi to his friend and I'm over here having an existential panic. I take a sip of beer because I'm like, 
I, oh my God, I can't breathe. I try to breathe in through my nose. I'm like, maybe it's not, maybe it's just my throat is swollen. I go to breathe in through my nose. I can't breathe in through my nose. I'm like, oh my God. I take a sip of beer. I'm like, maybe I'll wash it down. I feel the beer get stuck on top of the hot dog. (laughs) And I'm like, holy fucking shit. I'm going to die from choking on this hot dog. So I decide I'm going to go to the bathroom. I get up to go to the bathroom. Thank God I don't go to the bathroom because I haven't taken a breath in about 30 seconds at this point. The number one place that people die from choking on hot dogs is where? The bathroom. Don't go to the bathroom if you're choking. At this point in time, I turn. I look at Luke. Luke's talking to his friend, and I make the universal sign for choking, and Luke goes, oh, my God, are you choking? I haven't taken a breath for about 40 seconds. I need to do something. So like the badass I am, I fall on the bar. I Heimlich my motherfucking self. And I spit out beer and hot dog everywhere. Now, this is mortifying. So I have the sort of reaction that any normal person would have. I just start laughing like I'm insane. A high-pitched... <laughs> and Luke looks at me like, what the fuck is happening? And his friend looks at me like, what the fuck is happening? And I grab my purse and I say, we have to go. I run out of there and... That was not the last time I saw Luke. But next day, I go to my nonprofit job, and my colleague says, how did your date go? And I say, well, I became asphyxiated on a hot dog, and then I had to Heimlich my motherfucking self on the bar. And she says, you have to write this shit down. (laughs) And that, my friends, is how I became an author. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Uh, what did what did, what what did you write next? Like what what? Because uh, yeah, I know um, for a while you had like Facebook posts, which then that turned into a book. But obviously there was a couple books before then. But um, but yeah, what after your, that your coworker said that? Like what did you then do? Yeah, so that was a turning point for me because I never thought I was funny. That wasn't a big part of my or any part of my identity, literally at all. And my colleague was like, "You got to write this stuff down. You are funny." And I was like, I am? Maybe I'm funny, okay. So then, you know, at parties, I'm like testing out jokes. Like, what do you do? Oh, I do this, cracking a joke when you're not supposed to, right? Um, So my first book was just a compilation of humorous stories. My second book was about um, trying to break five years of celibacy, celibate for five years, and I wanted to break that dry spell. So that's called The Coitus Chronicles. My third book was a compilation of sort of um, humorous status updates, And my new book uh, that I'm excited to finish is a fiction novel about fate. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Little, um, well, we'll we'll see where this goes. But um, uh, yeah, Neo, what what comes to mind on uh, something you got started? it doesn't have to involve a hot dog. If it does, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. But just like, just letting you know, it doesn't have to include a hot dog. Well, when you're asking this, uh, I'm originally from Adelaide, South Australia, a small town in the Mid-South. Uh, my parents were, one, my mom was an immigrant from China. She had to leave and flee the Cultural Revolution and grew up as a refugee in Hong Kong. And my dad grew up in Malaysia. They both met each other in the UK, had my sister and brother, migrated for a better life in Australia and had me. 
reason why I tell that story is because I grew up in a community that wasn't like this at all. Mm. I grew up in a place where, you know, either you assimilate to the Australian culture or you're kind of outcast. And I really struggled with that from a young age. I used to literally look at myself in the mirror and say, why don't you look more white? And that was like something that I just, you know, was saying, hey, when I'm at high school, people kind of see you who you are. And I just felt like I looked different. And I think that turmoil in me uh, forced me to really explore deeper into my culture. My mom, well, I just remember my mom would always say, because I had bullies like through primary school and stuff like that. And she was like, you know, you look at them and you tell them no. Like, <laughs> and, and she like really taught me to stand up for myself. And I really wanted, I don't actually know why I'm getting so emotional. Sorry. I think it's just my mom's like, you know, her, her kind of strength in me when I was a kid. But I, I went to Asia, experienced air pollution and got really sick because I was trying to basically learn language because I think language is the key to culture right and I didn't really get the opportunity to learn my language I learned some Cantonese when I grew up but not Mandarin and uh, when I was there I you know experienced air pollution didn't think twice about it said thank god that Australia's home but it wasn't until like I, I myself am driven to like problem solve like David knows me I just like to solve problems but I also want to do good and at that time I was like pulled as an engineer into the oil and gas industry and it was kind of ironic because you're just a, a student at, at college and you're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a poor college student. What's the best internship I can get? And I ended up doing this internship that took me to like the Texas of Australia, which is Perth. And so here I am like in an oil and gas industry, just trying to make a career of myself and I'm connecting the dots. And at this point, I had traveled to uh, Hong Kong on this fellowship program and I'd met like multicultural kids, like basically New York City. Mm. And these people were coming from all different walks of life and they were so proud of the different cultures that they had. Like, you know, they were Asian and they were American or they're Indian and they're American or Canadian or whatever it was. And I remember coming back from this trip after two weeks and I literally had an American accent because I was like, I think I figured out the meaning of life. My friends are like, you're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am Australian and I'm Asian and that's what makes me like special. And I think what ended up happening was I connected all the dots, you know, being in corporate work that if this is where my ancestors call home and they don't even have the basic right to fresh air, then what kind of ancestor do I want to be for my people? And so that was my whole transition from like corporate work. I say corporate Australia, not corporate America, but corporate Australia into what I'm doing now, which is climate. And so then how did you kind of like, like that sounds like the kind of the vision and then what was like the tactical kind of like, coming up with a business model yeah. or getting customers or yeah what is what does that kind of look like yeah I mean as a kid that was like in his 20s having an oil and gas engineering degree and going I want to do something better you know the, definitely the jobs weren't sort of flowing around so the way I kind of caught it was I had to sort of b bounce around so first of all I couldn't get a job in Sydney or Melbourne because I was from Adelaide so I got a job in Perth then I moved from Perth and quit that and then moved to Sydney and was working utilities and then that I got acquired by KPMG, so I was working for them. So what I did was I completely left that world and was doing um, my like masters in the UK, and that was where I got like the chance to sort of rewrite my career. Um, and through that masters program, I moved to Kenya in Nairobi, and I was working on off-grid solar and agri-tech, and was just so inspired by technology and how it could change society. In fact, I remember this point where I was standing on top of a roof of a building in Nairobi, and I looked, and they had no poles and wires but they had electricity. 
And that was just something fundamentally in my mind as an engineer, just to think that we don't need poles and wires to get electricity because we have microgrids and things like that. And so that inspired me and I ended up getting a job uh, in New York, uh, managing a climate fund through a nonprofit called Echoing Green. And I was managing their climate fund for three years and was just inspired by how much technology had step shift. You know, you could actually fund climate solutions to make change. Three years realized that it's not just the money stopping climate solutions from scaling. We actually need people to bridge the science, technology, and policy gaps to business use cases. And I guess that's where the business model came. I would never encourage anyone to start a business if not for three reasons. One, there's a unique problem that you see in this world. One. Two, that you're uniquely positioned to solve for it. And three, that it doesn't make sense to partner with someone, but to build it yourself. Mm. And so I was kind of an accidental entrepreneur that basically built a climate expert in residence model to provide fractional capacity and expertise to help both the companies and also the startups to sort of bridge that gap. And since then, you know, we've evolved now in many ways. Love it. Amazing. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. (laughs) Watch. (laughs) Too hard acts to follow. No, 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 no. You got this. Uh, yeah, would love to hear uh, the story of how your movement got started, I guess. Hi, I'm Amanda, and I started a mental health nonprofit that focuses on self injury, so better known as self harm. And we have global peer support groups in our own literature. Um, And I became an accidental entrepreneur. (laughs) I never thought I'd be talking about my darkest struggle and something that was very much an isolating behavior that I never wanted to talk about and never wanted to get help for. I come from the fashion world and I was in corporate America for a very long time and it was just not fulfilling for me. And it started to go way back. I'm from Katy, Texas, and I lived a typical Texas life. I was a cheerleader, like traveling squad, school squad, definitely living a double life because I was very suicidal, multiple overdoses. I was diagnosed bipolar, I think like junior year of high school. And for instance, I one day I OD'd one night, I got my stomach pumped, and then I would go cheer at the football game the next day. And nobody knew what happened. And I was captain. So like I was just acting like I had everything under control. And then when I moved to New York, when I was 18, I went to fashion school here, worked at every magazine, got every internship I wanted. And I had an episode where I was cutting a lot. I'd always cut through high school and junior high. I started cutting when I was 10. And I thought to myself, wow, 13 years have passed. I'm 23 and I'm still cutting. I have such a great support network. I have great doctors, great therapists, psychiatrists. I have the right cocktail to handle the bipolar side of everything I'm going through. Why am I still cutting? Everyone said it was a phase and I haven't phased out. And I thought, what do the next 13 years look like? I eventually want to have a family and what if god forbid my children come in and they see me cutting and they pick it up and they think that's the way to handle your emotions or to show yourself love and that was the moment where i was it scared me enough where the embarrassment of needing help no longer outweighed the fact that i needed help and i was like okay well where do i go i don't know anyone that self injures and i don't even know what to google but and i felt so silly typing in self-harm i don't know why i just always hated that term 
Um, and I found this little peer support group that met once a week. And so I went and I totally judged my own tribe in a sense. I thought it would be how everyone stereotypes people that self-injure. They're outcasts. They're goth. Not that there's anything wrong with being goth. But they're, they don't talk to anybody. They seem very depressing. And when I walked in, I was shocked. One, I thought it would be all teenagers. It wasn't. It was all adults. There was not one teenager in there. And it was from people who were in their 20s all the way to their 70s. And they were also impressive. They were engineers. They were artists, they were PhD students, just every walk of life. And I was so shocked. And I thought, wow, these people are saying things I've always thought. And I thought if I said it out loud, people would think I was crazy. And after that, I called my family and my brother-in-law. I had them all on a conference call and I told them where I'd just gone. And it was snowing outside. I was freezing cold and I just started crying. And I just felt like this weight of the world lift off me and I didn't that was the moment when I realized how much self-injury weighed me down and how mm. much it was a part of my life and I thought it was who I was I didn't realize it was the, a behavior it wasn't my identity and after a couple years I started once I started living self-injury free um, and I got help I started um, watching like our emails and write um, reading them and I just thought, wow, no one knows what they're doing because the LAPD was reaching out to Harvard, Boston University, people in prison, people in Australia, people from all walks of life, all over the world, thinking five people in a room have an answer and we don't. Mm. And that's when I realized, okay, something needs to be done. And the straw that broke the camel's back for me was when my best friend who lives in Australia and worked in mental health said, hey, we have a bunch of kids cutting and burning themselves. We don't know what to do. What's the name of that group you go to? And I thought, wow, I work in fashion. I'm on the other side of the world, yet I'm your only resource for this. So that's when I told, at the time, the founder of the first iteration of the not or the peer support group hey i want to create a business out of this i want to create a nonprofit. i want to have resources and i want this to be global and he said i've been waiting 30 years for you so the following year i was at tory birch at the time i left tory birch i moved back to dallas um i moved in with my sister and was the nanny for my first nephew and i started the nonprofit. and then i started having us write our own literature so it's the first literature from through people with lived experience and not from researchers. We have four meetings a week that are global. We have a youth group support group, and we will be creating an online recovery and education course uh, with the help of researchers compiling data, hopefully next year. And then we're also writing a workbook. And then I also give workshops to doctors. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Um, there it sounded like there was like two moments there you said there was one of like your embarrassment mm -hmm. compared to uh like the need to get help yeah yeah, yeah. and then also when you, someone reached out to you mm -hmm. um either of those moments do you want to share more about uh, in terms of like what what it was like and then what kind of happened after that so the first one when i was kind of like just screw the embarrassment it was because I realized everyone in my life, I felt like lied to me, but they weren't lying. They just didn't know any better. And I think they thought it was going to help me if I, if they told me, oh, you'll phase out of this. This is an adolescent thing when it's really not. Most people I know that self-injure are adults. And yes, they might have started adolescence, but they didn't phase out of it. I also know people that have phased out of it. But um, 
that's when I realized I need to stop listening to other people mm. and I need to think, what do I need? And it's okay if I can't stop on my own. And it was just really embarrassing because I saw it as a childlike behavior and I'm 23. Granted, now I know like a 23 year old is still pretty as a child, but yeah. I'm not 12. <laughs> no offense to any 23 year olds, but, um, but I'm not 12. I yeah. should, I live on my own. I've accomplished all these things. I've done everything I wanted. Like, why can't I kick this? Um, so it was just very much a aha moment and it was surreal because I didn't realize how much time had passed. Mm. When you really think like, wow, 13 years has passed and I'm still doing this one thing. Mm. What do you need to do to make this change? Because 13 years go really quickly. Mm. Um, so that was the first one. And then when my friend reached out to me in Australia, they were, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, that's when my frustration and guilt kicked in. I was frustrated that nobody knew what to do. Everybody judged us. People stopped looking at us as humans and saw us as a liability. And that's why the relationship between healthcare providers and people that self-injure are broken, which is why I want this recovery course to help mend that bridge where they can listen to each other. Um, so I was frustrated from that point of view. And then I felt guilty that I was able to get help because I was at the right place at the right time. And I thought, okay, how do I bring this help to everybody else? And I was tired of, for instance, if you want to go to rehab for a drug addiction or you have an eating disorder, if you are cutting or doing any type of other self-injury, they won't let you in. Mm. And so it's like, they will help you only to an extent mm -hmm. and they will say, that's welcome. You can have an addiction. You can have an eating disorder, but no, you can't do that. That's too much for us. Mm. You're too much. Um, so that just frustrated me. And I kind of had a moment where I was like, fuck it. If no one's going to help it, us, I'll help us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. John, you go. And where can we learn more, by the way, Amanda? Oh, you can go to thesierra.org. So S-I-R-A. Thesierra.org. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, John, what comes to mind for you? Um, thank you for having me, by the way. Of course. I'm also a hot dog survivor. So. <laughs> um, I was thinking about what I want to talk about here. And we can talk about tribute stuff. That's kind of fun. Yeah, but I was thinking yeah. about actually talking about uh, how I got started walking. And just okay. kind of wrote that on, cool. the, on the board. And thought that would actually be a meaningful piece. And so um, I'm John. And I am a, a lifelong runner. Um, I, I started running in like elementary school and I uh, ran cross country and track uh, all through middle school and high school. I ended up uh, having this crazy lung injury and I had a, a surgery, was in the hospital for two weeks and came back three months later and broke five minutes in the mile, which was an amazing wow. moment for me. Um, about a year and a half ago, I found myself losing my ability to walk uh, after an insane neck injury that I had in 2018. Um, at the gym that went undiagnosed by over 25 doctors mm. and uh, was taking my ability to walk and be mobile in this world. What a crazy thing to, to feel as a 25, 24, 25 year old. And so um, after seeing so many, like countless doctors all over the country basically spending as uh, every dollar I basically had uh, throwing it at this injury that was so perplexing to the entire planet, um, I found this doctor in Spain uh, who did this rare spinal cord surgery on me about a year ago. And I noticed one month after the surgery, I 
was beginning to regain my strength really slowly in this, in, in this way that was really inspiring and beautiful and gave me so much hope for my life again. And so I said to myself in that moment, if I get to a point where I feel safe to, to live again, I'm going to live the most fucking epic life I possibly can. And, uh, and so uh, earlier this year, I said to myself in like early April, I was like, I'm going to move to Brooklyn. I'm just going to walk every single day. And so two weeks uh, after that, I moved, I moved to Brooklyn and started walking every single day. And I basically turned what was this absolutely horrifying um, experience of loss into like my biggest superpower. Mm. And so I just uh, tracked it today and I, I tallied up. I, I've, I've walked over 900 miles in the last six months. Wow. Um, and walking has really been the most joyful part of my days here. I spend a lot, a lot of the summer actually not working and just like walking. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I encourage everyone to walk. It's, 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 such, it's such a beautiful part of this. And not work. This, this, this life uh, to, to just enjoy the, the environment, to look up, to look around, to feel the joy of the moment and to, to, to be where our feet are. Um, and on top of that, I, I know some of you probably know this, but I ended up um, walking a marathon like three or four weeks ago on a whim because one day I was walking around McCarran Park till like 11 p.m. and I walked 16 and a half miles that day. And I was like, I can do 10 more of those. That's like, a, that, that's a marathon. <laughs> and so I was like, fuck it, I'll do it like next week. And it ended up being on the day of my, my surgery the one year. I said, I'm going to walk a marathon and I did it shirtless in these cool, uh, snakeskin, like really short shorts, uh, a fun hat. And I wrote walking for spinal injuries, uh, donate here on my, on my chest. I ended up raising over $5,000 in one day from over hundred, hundred people. And, um, yeah, that's my story of how I got started walking and never looked back. Wow. <laughs> hmm. Um, so what did, what did that marathon day, like, what did, um, what did that feel like when you were walking nonstop shirtless? Um, but also just like seeing the donations come in and just like pushing through, um, and just like continuing to keep going. What, what was, what was going through your mind at the time? Mm. Good question. Um, all I could feel in that moment was gratitude. Mm. And I remember just like walking around, like watching these donations come into my phone and I just started bawling my fucking eyes out walking around the track. And, um, yeah, gratitude is like a big part of my life as well. It's, it's how I feel joy in the most simple parts of this world. Um, and when I, I think by experiencing that spectrum of suffering on the spectrum of joy and suffering, like that experiencing suffering on that deep of a level has now allowed me to pendulum swing back to experience joy in the most, in the, in, in the same level of intensity as, as I did suffering in the previous two years. Um, so yeah, all I felt was gratitude and, and just absolutely so loved and supported by the entire, my entire community. So fuck yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you. Um, does anybody have like a follow-up question for anyone or does anyone <laughs> Olive's like just no one asked me about a hot dog uh, Tova yeah come on up uh, come on up and grab the mic yeah 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 I I was just when I was hearing uh, your story um, Amanda's story I remembered there was a there was a girl in my uh, high school who 
cut and I remember like gossip has always been like a really big part of my life and I think like when high school girls do it it can be particularly vicious and I think even I was hearing stories about self-harm happening and um I think I've thought back on that girl and I've wondered why because I think there are like this this myriad of stories we tell and that there's a cohesion to that stories and like I think the things especially like women deal with when they're younger people have like an idea of a narrative about what that is but I was just wondering like why like were there were there collections of reasons that you were like coming across um or was it just so different across the board because like I think the right like the legit reason which is like so it's morbid to say things like oh like this is a better reason to do something but those are the types of dialogues that I had in high school like but yeah like I was just so so curious about like those reasons that people kind of talk about because I and I don't know if that's like a offensive thing to no that's a great question uh thank you for asking it there are a lot of reasons why people self-injure. It's um, There's a multitude of reasons. I would say a common denominator is definitely perfectionism. Um, in Ivy League schools, they have the highest statistics of kids that self-injure because they have so much pressure. For me, I thought, one, I thought I made it up. So I thought I was a genius and I found like a loophole to emotions. Because um, a lot of the times we can feel like burdens. We're very empathic people and we turn all of our pain inward instead of outward. So for me, it was control. It was not feeling like a burden. I didn't have to go to my parents. I didn't have to go to my therapist. I didn't have to go to my friends. I could handle everything on my own. It was perfectionism. It was self-hatred and self-loathing. And as a way for me also not to cry. My pain and my tears showed in my arm instead of actually feeling it. So yeah, there's different reasons why everyone does it. It's just going to extreme lengths to regulate your emotions. That answers your question. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Did, yeah, Greg. Uh, for Olive, I was just wondering: um, is the fiction book comedic, or did you switch genres, and what's it about? <laughs> Thank you for that question. Uh, the fiction book is not funny, really. It's actually quite sad, um, which is a new, new terrain for me. So I'm really excited to try to sell it and see how how it does, and see people's reactions to it. But no, it's not remotely funny. <laughs> Not even a little bit. And what's it about? It's about um uh a it's about two teenagers and one of them dies and her boyfriend goes on a journey with her childhood best friend and a stranger to try to understand the ripple effects of her life and death. So we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. I have a question actually for John. Sure. You wanna go on a walk? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. I walk every day too. Would love to. It's on the record now. Um All right, uh, thanks everybody for sharing. Hey friend, thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. We'd love to hear what you learned and what you enjoyed. Um, You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever is best for you. And as a reminder, I'm just one email away as well. This episode with Timestamp Notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which includes the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.